What's up and welcome back to Now Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly quarantine episode. Dave, we're on, I think, week nine, ten? I think so, yeah. 60-something yeah. days in the bag. And we're still going strong because that content keeps churning out. Um, we've been dropping episodes uh, during this quarantine way before. So if you want to listen to those, go to youtube.com slash nostalgiapod, soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod. Um, and also, give a, giving us a follow or subscription on iTunes, uh, rating and review is always appreciated, as well as Twitter, at NostalgiaPod. Dave, we, we don't have an Instagram, but if we did, I wonder if we would have been one of the two million people that logged on to the Takashi 6 ix Instagram Live the other day, smashing Tory Lanez's record uh, of 350,000 viewers. Now, 6 9 obviously... Very famous, become a meme in the last year for ratting out all of his friends and, or all of his associates of his gang um, in order to get a reduced sentence. Um, and this was his first like public. Was he just released? Is that the case? He's out on house arrest due to the coronavirus. I and I saw it would have been uh, August, I think, normally. I saw that um, they had to already move him because of this. Like he, he kind of like either dropped his address, people were able to figure it out. So now they had to move him again. Just yeah, complete idiocy. One of his neighbors posted this video. She saw six nine on his uh, porch taking the photos that you saw him taking on on the porch, and it's like obviously she knows where where he lives now, and she put that up, and then they had to move him because uh, discretion is not uh, in six nine's mo. And judging by this comeback and the comeback song, he's just trying to. Uh, Double down and ride it out. And yeah. uh, the song is doing huge numbers because people are engaged. And as long as you pay attention, it sounds like that'll continue to be the case. So still kind of crazy, but he's back. Yeah, it's kind of nuts that he comes out and people are so into this. I mean, pretty pretty obvious that he is a uh, maybe not such a great person. Um, it seems to not be a super loyal person looking out only for himself, but still people are very into uh, at least the drama surrounding him and, and right. interested in his comeback. Uh, did anything else come out of this Instagram live that's noteworthy for six, nine? Oh no, I don't, I don't think so. Um, it's just that one track Gooba that he debuted with a video and stuff. And I'm just curious to see if, the tide starts the turn now that we have all these numbers and at least for the moment confirmation that there's still an appetite for six nines music in terms of people in the music industry collaborating with him. Obviously he'll have label support because they're only loyal to, to the money that he can still make. But you hear a lot of like OGs like 50 cent who he used to be close with and Snoop Dogg, all, all those people always throw, you know, discredit him, disowned him and a lot of New York artists have. And there really hasn't been anyone to like, defend 6 9 in this regard i'm just curious if that's going to change maybe with some younger artists people closer to his age just seeing the ability to chase success with him because it appears that a lot of his young fans either don't care about that or just don't really mind because he's a joker and a meme anyway so we'll see what happens but yeah it's uh, just getting started once again so <laughs> that's crazy shit man yeah um i i we were talking before we, we jumped on and i know 
uh, little TJ, uh, was, uh, I think, claiming to be the king of New York City, but t- and taking some shots at six nine as well as a boogie. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. Uh, curiously, little TJ was only doing this as he's promoting a new mixtape, State of Emergency, which is out now. But yeah, little TJ uh, getting a little out of pocket, sending some shots about his status uh, in the game, in the New York uh, rap game. I thought that was just kind of funny. And he started having some back and forths with Don Q, another New York rapper who's like a boogie's right-hand man. And 6 9 has not commented on as far as I know, but yeah, kind of interesting. But little TJ, you know, we just talked about him. You had, a, I think he had a really strong feature collab with uh, mm-hmm. 5 Yo Foreign on Ambition. Really liked that track. He also was really good on Mannequin with Pop Smoke on Meet the Boo 2. And Jeno's just been a really rising, uh, rising quite fast. Similar sound to A Boogie. Definitely will make XXL freshman this year. But uh, yeah, the Stage of Emergency project, hot off the October release of his debut album true to myself it's a pretty quick turnaround but uh yeah this uh this is this is not the project you're supposed to release after calling yourself the king of new york i think that is abundantly clear so did, did you agree do you, did this do anything for you you know dave when um when i first log in especially to these albums that i'm listening to to talk about on the pod but maybe i wouldn't normally be listening to I usually check to see, okay, what am I getting myself in for? Is this a, this a quick uh, project? Am I in for a long Drake-like marathon? Plus benefit and analysis. A, yeah, and I saw seven songs, 22 minutes on the Spotify app, and I was like, ooh, quick listen, right up my alley. By, uh, by the middle of the album, I think it was about song four, I could not believe I still had three more songs to go. I found this to be incredibly disappointing because uh, I think the couple of tracks I've heard with little TJ, he usually brings it and I'm impressed with him. Um, and this was just dull. I found, uh, I found a lot of it very samey except for maybe the, the track with pop smoke, which seemed like an obvious like attempt at catching some of that, this, this drill hype right now. Yep. But otherwise, man, I mean, I guess like my city jumps out as a track that is a, a bit more engaging, but overall it's like, oof tough stuff and the thing is he carries what what, one song on this by himself the rest are all collabs with other people Mm -hmm. not usually a good sign for a a young artist to not be putting stuff out on their own especially i mean some maybe the the singles are are collaborations and that's understandable you get more fans who like individual Mm -hmm. artists hearing these other songs but an album or a mixtape not not hearing more songs that are just him is a little bit worrisome you didn't like it either so what didn't you like about it yeah i mean to his credit the last album from last year was primarily him solo but yeah he doesn't tj does not make a strong impression on this at all i think the biggest moments are the obvious pop smoke feature which i think zoo york in general is a very disappointing track i thought five yeah was pretty underwhelming on it as well pop smoke i mean that 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 was a that was a great feature to uh unearth you know i thought that sounded great that made that that hit and then uh, Chef G, another Brooklyn drill artist. I thought he was hard as fuck on Wet Him Up Part 2. But yeah, like City on My Back and My City, like those are like good in the sense that that's TJ sticking to what we expect from him with that like auto crooner sound. Mm-hmm. All the other stuff, I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't know if we want to hear him on Axel Beats and really trying to make a drill track. And again, like I said, he's made songs with 5 of you on Pop Smoke before. It's not that he hasn't... Uh, 
dipped his toe into the other side of the city, but for this just seemed kind of shallow this time around. And overall, I thought I thought it was it was pretty underwhelming, pretty forgettable. And I think it's just it's just kind of funny to hear TJ at uh, nineteen calling himself the king of New York because it's just really obnoxious claim, honestly. Um, <laughs> and I, mean, I, I don't know how how serious he really takes it in his heart of hearts, but the energy he was bringing online, saying it, uh, it seemed like he was into it. But yeah, it's kind of nonsense. I, I don't, I don't hate him being bombastic and and you know egotistic, like showing a huge mm. ego like that. Um, but yeah, definitely to back it up in this way is. is kind of embarrassing i'd say who you know that's actually an interesting question who would you say does have that like king of new york rap right Mm -hmm. now for you yeah i mean it all depends on how you define it right like it is in terms of heat right now overall accomplishments because jay-z is like the 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 true king right Mm -hmm. and then there's lots of other ogs like 50 cent fab uh, that would that would that count in that regard too, Fat Joe. Um, Nikki is weird because she's never really like been identified as a New York yeah. artist, but she's still really hot and you know still at the top of the game. So I, I always find it weird that we don't just default to her. To me, it's still ASAP Rocky, um, mm. and I feel like he, he almost is getting underappreciated now. But for it's been ASAP Rocky for me for a while. I think the like critics' choice would be like Joey Badass, but Joey isn't quite as mainstream at the top like asap is so i think i'll go with rocky a lot a lot of other people would say a boogie is quote the hottest right now um for me maybe if a boogie really keeps his run going he's expressed interest in slowing down his output and taking a step back from his you know whirlwind career at this point so maybe it depends but a boogie's probably doing the biggest numbers of anyone apart from Six nine, but I feel like we kind of have to disqualify him if nobody in New York fucking like respects him. Like you just don't count. Like you don't actually rep New York. And it's funny if Pop Smoke didn't die, I feel like he was like the default choice because mm. he had universal approval and was already you know getting bigger than New York itself. So yeah, for me, it's still ASAP Rocky. Yeah, wait. The first person that came to mind for me actually was Joey. I think. Um, mm. But ASAP, I think it makes logical sense, you know, especially if you take out the OGs, like you said. Um, yeah, and it's kind of crazy that Pop, Pop Smoke was right there right. Uh, at such a young age. Um, true, true, huge loss. Um, you know, someone that I think similarly to Pop Smoke is very young and has this huge groundswell of, of support and, and excitement around her career is Little Sims. You know, it dropped gray area a couple of years back and talked just about last year. It, was it just last year? Yeah, it was on your list, brother. Come on. Yeah, I know. I, I was thinking, was it 2010 or 2019? But uh, it was on my list. Love gray area. I've gone back to quite a bit, quite a few times. Um, and she dropped this EP, Drop Six, mm-hmm. um, which is, uh, you know, continuation of a, a, a run of EP she had in 2014 2015 you know drop one two three four that sort of thing um and this these uh, collection of songs believe it's about i think it's only six um really seem to be um centered around what's going on right now in terms of the the isolation and the quarantine and and she's even done some interviews kind of talking about how most of these songs are written now and inspired by that so 
definitely a timely drop. Um, Little Sims brought the heat on gray area. Did you feel like that heat continued on drop six, Dave? Yeah, I did. I did. Um, of these, I think, five tracks, I really like three of them. Might bang, might not. One life might live. And then you should call mom. Tracks yep, one, those two, are the three. four. I thought those were just like unimpeachable. Mm-hmm. Bang your Little Sims tracks. They sound exactly like the best Little Sims tracks. Strong songwriting. Really good flows, yep. engaging production, kind of more of what we expect from her uh, having achieved that new level last year with Gray Area. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool that this still feels like a EP of the moment, as you said, with the obvious quarantine influence and lyrics relating to the sense of isolation and uh, uneasiness that a lot of people are experiencing at this time. So uh, for a for an EP, a short EP, that was announce a basically no promotion. Uh, I think it really does leave a strong impression and just continues the, uh, I think growing esteem all everyone has for little Sims once they listen to her. So, yeah. And if, and if I've said this before, but her English accent just like really hits, man. Some of the words she enunciates, they sound so much better because she's yeah. English. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree. And the three songs you highlighted are the three that I also had written down. Uh, One life might live is already on our, now Selja Best of 2020 playlist was like an immediate ad for me. But she starts off the record uh, on Might Bang, uh, Might Not, saying, ain't seen no one like me since Lauren Hill back in the 90s. Quite a, quite a claim. Um, and I, but I, I like how she's kind of picking this as like her lane, that she's going to kind of take over this female hip-hop, like uh, bellwether person that's just going to kind of carry this forward. And Honestly, everything she's putting out makes me think she could, I mean, that's a very lofty title, but could potentially get there. Um, she, Like you said, her songwriting is unimpeachable. Uh, her, She has a very like distinct, but still like differential style within her work that I think she can kind of go between different sounds, but still kind of keep this cohesiveness. And that's something we kind of talk about liking uh, a lot with the artists that we review is when they can keep this cohesion while also still being experimental. And you listen to a track like One Life Might Live, which just has this like awesome hook. But then a song like You Should Call Mum, which I feel like I, I really ride more for the verses and kind of what she's saying in mm-hmm. that. And she, she just is a great uh, young songwriter. She's only 26. And she is alluding to a bigger project that she's working on right now and trying to perfect before she drops. So very excited to see what comes from her. Check out this little Sims drop six. Dave, should people be checking out this new Bishop Naru album, Naruvia, My Disregarded Thoughts? Uh, it's not the first place I'd point to you for Bishop <laughs> Naru music, but it has a lot of the equal- qualities I think people that have listened to before would like. But as a you know full-length record, it's, it's kind of uneven for me. I think part, part of that's because he's putting kind of lofty expectations on it with this like three-part structure and trying to make it really conceptual. So, you know, he's still a conscious rapper that has really good technical ability. So if you like that, um, I think it's fine things to like here, but um, I, I would defer more to some of his other projects. Well, and and the thing about Bishop was he was kind of picked out from an early age by Doom, right? As like this mm-hmm. like next big thing and has never really kind of, 
had that that drop yet that people have pointed to and been like there it is like that's him putting it together it's kind of been hit and miss here and there yeah I mean he's eight years in the game at this point but still only 23 like he has a ton of output and he kind of represents the true sense of what underground independent hip-hop artist is these days and um Despite that, he's obviously has this great long-standing relationship with Doom, as you said, and also with Kei Trinata. You know, Doom and mm-hmm. Keitra produced the last album he made that we talked about. And, you know, I think in, in this case, Bishop, I wouldn't say he's finding himself, but he's like, he's almost, it's weird. He's almost like getting, like still getting those reps. Like I hear a song, I think my favorite song on this was one of the first singles. It's Two Lost, which is produced by DJ Premier. And that just reminds me of like 1999 era Joy Badass in terms of just traditional boom bap flows and production, which of course makes sense when it's produced by Vermeer. Um, but then there's other songs where it's like more introspective, more eerie stuff. So I think there's, there's, there's a lot to like still, and he's never stopped being a really talented guy. Um, but I think I'm just going to find myself listening to some of his older stuff. Um, Funnily enough, too, he had a loose single, I believe, at the end of 2019 called Everything. And it was really threw me for a loop. I think it's a great track, but it's unlike anything else he's done. It's almost like a uh, like a more like melodic, like, like, like not singy rap, but it's like a completely different flow than anything's ever done before. And I, I was expecting to hear more of that direction, but it seemed to have just been a one-off thing he tried. So... Not that I like that though. I think his town can change styles too. And we did see that with Joey and Flatbush Zombies and lots of other people that people don't usually stay traditionalists forever. They will eventually want to continue to grow their sound. And I'm sure Bishop will get to that point at some point. Um, but yeah, uh, if, if you like, uh, if you're about those bars, you can still get them on this. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting because listening, there were a couple moments uh, that I thought were pretty good. Um, me head with do with MF doom kind of stood out. Um, but it's always like nice to hear doom, like a song, like all of my, my years, right. Which the way it's kind of like set up is there's like this, like a chance, the rapper type sound to the beginning of it. And that, that kind of uh, pulls through. And I was just like, I really enjoy hearing this, but I can't help but like want to listen to a chance song. And then like yeah. another song I liked from him that was like me and my thoughts I was listening to it and I was like, I mean, lyrically, this is a great song, but I just find myself kind of fading out on it halfway through. And I I feel like there's a lot of like good pieces in a lot of these songs or Mm -hmm. or things that that seem really interesting. Like there's, I I think it's on me and my thoughts where he uh, he kind of uses a a reverb on his voice and it goes really, really low and kind of like dark and I thought that was a really interesting touch to it. And like, if that was like a, a theme that I felt like popped out more throughout, maybe this record would feel a little bit more, a little more cohesive and a little bit more interesting, but the way it kind of jumped around from sound to sound and wasn't totally cohesive, even though it was kind of in three parts. So I was just mm-hmm. like, eh. you know, I just felt like that maybe could have been cooked a little bit more, I guess. Yeah, I agree. Um, but Bishop, I mean, I, I think you can see why, why he's been, working since he was 15 like he's obviously got great technical ability just trying to really i think piece those ideas together in a way that's more palatable any songs off this you want to put on the playlist uh, we already have two lost on there i also like little Susie be okay but again that's similar vibe um more traditional boom bap song 
Um, and I, I like Meathead as well with Doom. Gotcha. Me, Meathead I might throw on there. We'll see. But uh, I'm wondering with this Haley Williams album, the solo album that's dropping, you know, we talked about After Laughter in 2017. I believe you actually had it on your top 10 list if I'm... Oh, I don't remember. But I remember I really liked Hard Times. I thought that song yes. banged. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I go I'm back to sure. Fake Happy a lot. So, yeah. yeah, honestly, the album's great. Um, and it, I think what it did in terms of Paramore, you know, which is this like 2000s band that really caught like the end of like the the like emo, angsty high school. It was a pop punk like, band. Phase. Yeah, pop punk. And, and uh, but like, I feel like they brought more of that like popness to it. Um, instead, like, it's funny because I think about Evanescence a lot when I think about early Paramore <laughs> only because they were like similar in terms of like a female lead and like really caught that popular sound even though they weren't totally pop. Um, but Paramore really shifted more into that 80s nostalgic vibe on After Laughter. Yeah. It's been New three years. Since. Yeah. They're, they're not really dropping new music right now and Haley seems to be focusing more on herself. And that brings us to Pedals for Armor, her new album that drops. And I kind of left my the, this album of two minds. I think one, it's a little little too too much fat on this. I think it could have been cut down a bit, been a little bit more concise. And I felt like certain themes of it were played out in not the most interesting way by the end. So I was a little bit, I found myself zoning out a little bit. 15 tracks, end. that's a lot. But I was a little bit, uh, I, I was a little bit intrigued and impressed by Haley's like direction that she's taking this, like the strength that I think comes through in her songwriting. Um, and I, I think a couple of these songs really pop, you know, and uh, of course, if you can get a boy genius backing vocal on one of the tracks, you, you take it. So there's, there's some stuff to like on here. Where were you left after finishing pedals for armor? Yeah, it, it is kind of funny to hear that after, Post after laughter, which in itself was a Paramore heel turn, we're then getting the f- the first Haley solo album, which is, which is kind of funny because Haley was always signed uh, as a solo act, and then she made the band, you know. But um, hearing another heel turn, right? Like right. Pedals for Armor is, I mean, what kind of genre would you put this in? Like it's like singer songwriter music, but it does kind of hop around a lot, and yeah, to you know to I think the, the the highlight, the key, is the songwriting, and frankly, the 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 vulnerability, the frankness that that songwriting gives you. Because Paramore, by being a pop punk band, and kind of having that energy, you listen to their lyrics. They are ultimately a very sanitized, almost Christianized band, and that might have been part of the friction that bubbled up with the band and people leaving and rejoining and all that. And Hearing Haley, I think, really just kind of like let it all out and express herself without holding back at all was really refreshing to me. Uh, but it's it still kind of jumps around a lot, like with the yeah. sound. Like you're getting all these good themes, like just kind of more open fem- femininity and anxiety and reconciling with her divorce from the newfound glory guy. And <laughs> then then we, but then you have like the what cinnamon sounds like, and then you have like why are you creeping around here? Like it does jump around all over the place, yeah. you know? So, 
Well, yeah, it's funny because I think at the end, one of the songs that caught me because it it really was so like poppy was Sugar Sugar on the Rim. And I was like, oh, wow, this song is so like just like catchy and like uh, you kind of like smack it around in your mouth a little bit. But then the song I probably liked the most from the album is the first track, Simmer, which is Mm. just her like scathing and like her vocal performance and her emotional uh, performance in that track is just so like exactly the title it's like simmering underneath like something's about to explode but she's kind of holding it all in and um just like you there's such a range on this album like you kind of mentioned that's it's it's fascinating to kind of see what's coming out and i agree the vulnerability on this especially because she talks about having suicidal thoughts having um you know abusive parents go uh growing up going through or I guess living in an abusive household seems like her mom was mm-hmm. in a domestic violence situation. Um, it seems like her divorce you mentioned was, was a major player into this as well. So th- there's a lot of, I mean, she's very exposed on this, which I, I give her a ton of credit for. And it seems like she had a lot to pull from um, life-wise. You, you mentioned Cinnamon. That's one of the songs that stood out to me. Any others that you really liked or that you thought... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought I thought creeping that the hook is just catchy, but sudden desire jumped out to me. Um, I, I like the way she builds to that chorus, but again, lyrically, talking about female lust in the open, not something we were going to get from Paramore proper. So that, that again, that's just kind of cool. I like Dead Horse. I like Crystal Clear. Uh, Simmer, as you said, is good. Cinnamon. Um, it is cool to hear the boy genius backing vocals on yeah. Rose's Lotus Violet Iris. Uh, yeah. Did not did not recognize those when I heard them. Read about that after the fact, but yeah, that that's cool. And uh, definitely in terms of like overqualified background vocals, kind of shows the clout <laughs> Haley has as a yeah uh, Atlantic Records artist. But you know, she's only thirty one, but she's been in everyone's lives since she was Forever. like fifteen. Yeah, so really, honestly, really impressive and. She has talked about um, Paramore's gearing up for a new album. Might get back to the roots a little bit. So that would yeah. be, in turn, another heel turn <laughs> for what the music she's giving us. But yeah, it's pretty cool, honestly. I'm trying to think of who her peers are. Like, the only person that kind of comes to mind, especially after this album, is like Miley, you know, kind mm. of for me. Um, you know, especially because Miley really moved out of that like pop, young Hannah Montana. Uh, Lane really did a heel turn. Now it's kind of gone back to a more traditional, like singer songwriter right. type realm. You, you know, um, there's been some anecdotes about when she when she befriended Taylor Swift way back in the day. Her and Taylor were kind of on equal footing in terms of like where they were in their respective scenes. And it's kind of funny to see. Obviously, Taylor Swift far surpassed Haley in yeah. terms of star power. But yeah, like there's not a lot of like female rock or pop rock figures from the the aughts that are still kind of active in a major way today mm-hmm. like I don't, would like pink count like I yeah don't know. i guess maybe but pink I, I almost put it in like a generation before her in some sense yeah. i'm trying to like you know the interesting thing about it is like paramore had such a, a hiatus then came back and then now Haley's dropping the solo album it, it almost feels a bit like Stevie Nixie in a way, hmm. uh, but obviously the music is not comparable. Um, in, in terms of quality, I would say Paramore I would never put on the same playing field as Fleetwood. Um, but also I think in terms of like career arc, 
Stevie Nicks, who's I think a little bit older when she started making her solo albums. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's hard. I, I can't really think of a comparison, but definitely excited to see what Haley does next. She's, she's mm-hmm. talent. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting to think about her collaborating with Boy Genius, even in an abbreviated way, because, you know, Boy Genius represents this kind of revival of female rockers that's been happening the past few years. Um, you know, we talked about Soccer Mommy earlier this year. There's really a lot of them now. But Haley, it, you know, represents that generation beforehand, even if she's only like, you know, five, six years older than some of these people. Yeah. But she's just so much more experienced. They've been around so much longer. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, Does I'll, Avril Lavigne count? Well, I mean, Avril Lavigne, there's, when was the last time we heard anything from her? And there's a huge conspiracy that Avril Lavigne is not actually Avril Lavigne. So, That's right. <laughs> uh, definitely go read that on Reddit if you want a, a fun conspiracy, unlike all the other Reddit conspiracies out there right now. <laughs> um, you know, Haley really captures this, uh, this idea of like strong femininity through her vulnerability on that album. Um, and an, another artist we're about to talk about, Kalani, dropping her second album proper. This is her fourth like major project, really, though. Um, also talks a lot about femininity uh, and, and individualism um, on this album, as, long as, as well as like isolation and distance mm. and relationships. Uh, her newest album, it was good until it wasn't. Uh, left me super impressed and my my Kalani stock uh, I'm gonna buy as much as I can now because I feel (laughs) like she's only gonna keep skyrocketing and man I gotta say I just want to put it out there it's already on our playlist grieving um, uh, with James Blake it's up there in my top 10 songs of the year right now I think that track is just phenomenal and and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about it but uh this was the vibe throughout. There's like this this really light, airy sound throughout uh, that Kalani just kind of rides over, and this this album fucking rocks. I think. How, how did you feel leaving it? I liked it a lot. I'd say what stood out to me most of all, you know, five Kalani projects in, is that it seems to show a sense of maturity, sense of growth from Kalani despite the fact that she already had really mature subject matter and lyrics already. Um, but in this case, you know, post-pregnancy, having a child, um, post some public, uh, public breakups and fallouts and beefs and things. I think Kalani has just kind of taken herself to a new point in her career and how she's thinking about things. And I think that the Sonics actually were just kind of darker and moodier than her past mm-hmm. work yet you're still getting this really intimate love song more often than not. And the fact that you can still make that work in a good way with, I think, songs you can take apart and listen to or just vibe with the whole album, again, speaks to the, the growth she, she, she's had. Um, you know, she, she's had a unique brand of R&B for some time, but I, I, she, she has a, just a way about the way she expresses these kind of cutting lyrics. I think of songs like, um, like toxic on this, mm-hmm. I stood out grieving. Um, just, there's, there's something about, about the way she expressed herself that I always really, uh, gravitate to. And it's kind of cool uh, reading about how she put this album out. This was supposed to come out back on April 24th and, uh, her label, uh, 
Atlantic basically said, hey, you can put it out now if you want, but we're not really going to help you do a whole lot. So she had to do a lot of this DIY in terms of like videos and weird promo, which is just so strange to me that the label basically like gave her the bird in a certain sense. It's be like, hey, if you want to sacrifice uh, your ability to promote this, then we're just not going to help you promote it at all. Like, I don't get that. But yeah, uh, it's still sexy as shit. You know, yeah. that's Kalani's vibe, man. <laughs> I fuck with it. Yeah, even even the album cover we talked about before is like, I feel like it kind of matches the album very well in terms of it's it's kind of like seductive and you know it's Kalani from the back, short shorts, booty kind of hanging out at the bottom. Uh, obviously, like on a hot day, she's like a little sweaty or wet, um, but it's it, it is kind of like toned down in a sense. You know, you think about. Um, was a 2017 sweet sexy savage and how yep. that was like this like sunshiny glittery you yep. know up much more poppy record and this almost feels like she's kind of falling into like this traditional r&b sound while keeping i think some of that kalani uniqueness and uh, i i think that speaks to the maturity you're talking about where she's she's kind of making these songs that are timeless in a sense like there's no people name there's really no references to specifics which is kind of like these overall messages about relationships what helps them work what doesn't what what do you feel when they fall apart um and i think that's what connie does so well um you know you already mentioned toxic which i think is one of the, the best songs off here but a song like f uh, and mu really stood out to me um i thought the uh, there was one song, it might have even been, um, oh yeah, on Toxic, like the way that the 808s and the chimes kind of overlay mm-hmm. throughout. I, like, I loved how like she used some pretty creative uh, beats and, and ways of kind of structuring these songs that felt, you know, still uh, interesting, but you uh, you kind of just find yourself vibing throughout this whole record. And it's funny, I think Grieving stood out so much to me as a song because I really found myself like, almost like melting into the song. And then when Kalani comes back in to, to kind of pair up with James Blake at the end, I like literally jumped twice because she comes in so strongly. It all, like my heart, like skipped a beat because <laughs> James Blake had lulled me so much into like this, like trance. It was, it was crazy. Yeah. I thought that song was really well constructed. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Serial lover really stood out to me. Mm. I thought that like, the post chorus i got bodies i'm gonna take to the grave i got girls i want to give my last name just incredibly catchy yeah. and that's kind of always been her vibe is she has this it, it's not like boilerplate stuff and that was kind of the biggest con- uh, uh, criticism of sweet sexy savage was that kalani almost just leaned into the more typical mainstream pop stuff for that debut when in reality that's not what she's actually best at it's more about this sultry uh at surprisingly deep rb yep. so sultry. this is really good good word dave sultry check out kalani's it was good until it wasn't and also check out our nostalgia best of 2020 playlist which has songs from all these except for little tj because that album sucked um let's start though with some tv dave and let's also talk about our guy mark ruffalo they knew tommy uh you know it's interesting so you think about mark ruffalo's career over the last couple of years right he did dark water uh waters he's he's doing this prod dark Waters. sorry um he's he's uh doing this album he did spotlight he's done some really really heavy mm-hmm. like fox sketcher another one some 
yeah, Foxcatcher, exposing issues around mental health, government um, doing terrible things, I guess we'll just say. And then he's mm-hmm. also the Hulk. He's Bruce Banner, you know? So there's like this kind of stark contrast between him, like, getting that bag and, like, doing the things that he's passionate about. He's obviously a very thoughtful guy, very activist. Um, and I, I give him a lot of credit for following the things that he cares about and exposing and you know, using his work to prop those issues up watching. I know this much is true in his new HBO show where he plays twin brothers. Uh, one who is schizophrenic and the other who is kind of like the linchpin of this family holding things together, but obviously also very troubled by his family's history. I found myself kind of wanting Mark Ruffalo to take a step back and do something a little bit more fun because it, it might be the situation we're, we're in and this dropping during a very heavy time for a lot of people in general. But I found this this one hour to be a very tough watch, a very tough hang, this show. Did you feel similar? Yeah, it's just exhausting subject matter. Mm-hmm. And by all accounts, that's just the way that story goes. And for shows like that, they're largely designed around their star and they're just a vehicle to showcase good acting and hopefully pursue awards. In the case of HBO, a limited series, I think Mark's chances are strong in that that camp. But it just, I, I don't know if it's going to be a fun time, even abbreviated to six hours. So it's, uh, I would not uh, begrudge anyone if they were like, yeah, I'm just not feeling that at this time. And I don't, I don't even know if that's, it's, I don't think it's bad. It yeah. just happens to be, you know, what it's about might not be super engaging to a lot of people right now. Um, mm. But I mean, Mark Ruffalo is a great actor and I think he's, he is giving two pretty distinct performances as these brothers already showing a lot of uh, pent up rage as the one brother. And then obviously playing someone with a, a mental illness gen- naturally lends itself to uh, a different sort of range. So uh-huh. yeah, it's uh, for me, I'm almost a little biased too because I, I found it more engaging because this was shot in and around my hometown. So that I'm recognizing locales and I know we're going to get some flashback scenes once the uh, Italian manuscript becomes a framing device. When we're going back in time, that was literally filmed in Poughkeepsie. So I'm just going to be looking for things I recognize, like seeing the Mid-Hudson Bridge pretty obviously in those tracking shots in the first episode. So that's cool, I guess, for me. But yeah, in terms of the story, I'm like, uh, well, nice to see Catherine Hahn. Yeah. I always like her, you know, Juliet Lewis, yeah. good too. Yeah, Juliet Lewis was um, was the, the one I was probably most excited to see because, you know, Catherine Hahn, I think, has been a little bit more in vogue recently. She had the HBO mm-hmm. show. Yeah. Um, and uh, we are both tuned into The Ringer, and they've been standing her, I think, since they talked about Step Brothers on the rewatchables. Um, <laughs> but. I would seeing Juliet Lewis and seeing her kind of play this very like on edge, like translator person who obviously has their own mental health issues. I think that was the part where I just was like, Oh wow, the show is going to be super exhausting to watch. And I agree. I don't, I think the acting overall is pretty good. The performances are good, but like just thinking about what happens in the first episode, first five minutes, the, the brother who has schizophrenia cuts his right hand off or his left hand off. I can't remember which one in a public place. And then the other brother has to come and make the decision if he should put the hand back on. 
there's a, uh, allusions to a, a abuse towards children, you know, them as children from the stepfather growing up, or at least towards the boy who's schizophrenic. Mom gets cancer. He goes to have this transcript made as a gift to her. And then this person also seems to be having mental health issues. <laughs> um, and then he has to chase his, his brother across the highway. I mean, like, it's tough. Like it's like one heavy thing after another, after another. And like the final scene with him and his, I guess, ex-wife or estranged yeah. wife at this point, mm-hmm. and that ends in a way that's just super heavy. I just was like, ooh, like emotional low at the end of this episode. Yeah. <laughs> and, no, I, I, and I don't know the story, so I'm not sure how many emotional highs are coming. That's my worry. I don't. I don't know it either. I know this book was uh, from. I think the nineties was Oprah Winfrey's book club really blew it up. Um, Rosie O'Donnell is going to be coming into the show as the social worker. Um, that's a lot of love for that performance from her. So that's cool, I guess. Uh, but to that point, there's illusions of abuse to come from that medical quote unquote medical facility that the brother has been assigned. So yeah, not, it doesn't sound like it's going to be uh, the funnest time. Six hours only, though, I guess is enough for me to finish, of course. But yep. yeah, it's a lukewarm endorsement. Let's put it that way. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold Betty on reserve to watch right after the show. It's, yeah, like my, it's a good my, idea. I can just relax after watching. Um, <laughs> why don't we talk about Ryan Murphy's newest show, Hollywood on Netflix. Um, Ryan Murphy being you know, the creator of a lot of FX shows and, and other very mm-hmm. famous shows on Fox, like Glee, American Horror Story, People vs. OJ, um, Pose. People vs. Series, Pose. Very famous creator. Now signed a deal with Netflix to produce some shows. We talked about The Politician. Now the second show, Hollywood. Talking about uh, Hollywood in the 1950s. <laughs> this fictionalized story about the, a bunch of, I guess we'll say, outcasts in the society then, you know, uh, mostly outcasts in that society yep. then, trying to make it big and kind of centering around the script uh, about Me- uh, Peg, uh, what's her last name? Something and, with whistle. And whistle? Is that right? Something like that, yeah. And Who jumped uh, off the Hollywood sign, real story. Yeah. Very famous story. Uh, and I found this show to be pretty fun, but just I, I think where it kind of ended up just left me be like, huh. I thought the show was going to go in a very different direction and uh, kind of disappointed with where it ended. How did you feel with this mini series by Ryan Murphy? Yeah, so I, I enjoyed Hollywood a lot. I thought it was pretty fun the whole time. You know, there's some things that stand out pretty clearly, like strong attention to period detail, uh, wide range, strong cast as one expects from a Ryan Murphy production and generally just, you know, kind of a fun time and just going through the story. But in, and I definitely like it a lot more than the politician, which I thought just had a lot of flaws that prevented it from being successful. I think Hollywood for what trying to do is successful, but it still has a lot of like the things that hold it back that we expect from lesser Ryan Murphy shows in, namely that it just kind of lacks a lot of subtlety and it jumps around in tone en- enough 
yet doesn't almost commit to jumping around in tone enough. Like it, it, it's, and somehow there's not enough conflict in this story. So like there's, there's some faults for sure. And it might be a little self-congratulatory with this kind of obvious alt history presenting a, you know, so war message about inclusion and representation. Um, yeah, I, I still had a good time. I think some of the performances really stood out. So I like only seven episodes, kind of an interesting pace because it starts off with a two part pilot. Right. Mm-hmm. And you almost feel like you're building up to something. I'm it really starts off strong, but then yeah, it kind of fizzles at the end where it gets a little more predictable and uh, maybe it doesn't quite hit as hard as it hoped it would, but I still enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I, I thought it was a lot of fun. I think where, um, I think where the show really excels is the way that it kind of um, it, it uses this time period, which I believe is very beloved. Um, and, and there's a lot of affection for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it puts people as fictionalized versions of real people. You have rock Hudson appearing mm-hmm. in this. Um, you have um, the, the woman from, mcdaniel from gone with the uh, wind uh hattie, hattie mcdaniel hattie mcdaniel mm-hmm. you have henry wilson uh played by jim parsons which i, I want to talk about in a second how you felt about that that performance um and then you have these these people who are kind of like a, a, a you know real fictional characters who are just kind of playing a an avatar for people during that time who went through similar things and i i think it, it really like weaves that in and out very well to tell this story about what Hollywood was like, kind of this like dark seedy underbelly and, and how some of these inner workings probably actually went during that time. So people could get by or could make money or could get these opportunities with these studio heads. And I think that's all interesting as well as really exposing the, the things that aren't talked about as much, like the, the culture of gay men and gay people in Hollywood mm-hmm. at that time and kind of how they had to keep that a secret. Um, I think the place I found myself to be most, uh, I think, disappointed, and I guess this might be a good place to jump off, is you talked about the lack of conflict in this. And when you have all these marginalized people, you know, you have black people, gay people, gay black people (laughs) in this story Mm -hmm. who face such little uh, discrimination, I would say, or, or... the, the lack of discrimination that they face, it, it felt very unrealistic in a lot of yeah, senses. That's that, I mean, it, it, so much of it's just really implausible. That's right. what I to say. I mean, the Oscars that year is way more diverse than any Oscars I think we've ever had. Uh, yeah, it, and that's, I, that's the 1948 Oscars on the show. Right. <laughs> <laughs> just uh, pretty, I mean, the, the, the one scene, I guess, or I guess there's two scenes. There's the burning of the cross and the front lawn of everybody's making the movie, making Meg. And then there's uh, them spitting at the car when um, the the actress and the director are driving mm-hmm. in, Darren Chris and um, I forgot what the Laura Harrier, Camille and Raymond. Yes, um, when they were driving in. That's like the only two scenes where you really see that. And I guess there's some scenes when uh, at the, the Oscars, people are booing and, and not taking mm-hmm. pictures because Rock Hudson and the writer are are on the red carpet together and yeah. other than that jim parsons is pretty emotionally abusive as henry wilson throughout and 
that's some tough stuff, but it just kind of left me feeling like, ah, everything's going to work out and just feeling, I, I, I honestly thought it was going to end up where the movie flops or it doesn't hit and like everything kind of falls apart, but they're just applauded for the attempt. Um, yeah. Right. But uh. I mean, and that, that was kind of interesting too, because they kind of set up uh, Samara Weaving's character, Claire to be this like rival uh, figure for Camille Yep. And you know, she's she's the blonde uh, white woman, the, the daughter of the studio head. Of course, she'll get the role and not the more deserving, but happens to be black actor, right? But no, like Camille gets the role and then Claire is really supportive and nice and actually gets her best scenes after that. Like It's like almost like a false start in terms of setting up some kind of butt, heads to butt. And like, you know, Rock Hudson, I think, is an inter- interesting character here because, I mean, so much of it, is with regard to Henry Wilson, we'll get to that. But I mean, it's very different from Rock Hudson. I think people know because he was truly a star, and in, in this story, he's kind of just bumbling into like bit parts and kind of an ass actor. So that's, mm-hmm. that was that's kind of amusing. <laughs> um, but like again, like uh, uh, Rob Reiner, he plays uh, Ace, you know, the head of Ace Studios, which is like our stand-in for Paramount, and he's set up to be this like you know casting couch old school like dipshit and then he kind of gets redeemed at the end right before he dies and i was like oh, also didn't see this coming uh, kind of right. weird but then it's like oh well the uh, the legal people that they deleted the film they, they burned it you know the reels are gone there it is and then they immediately resolve that right away yeah. it's like, they just never kept a conflict going because even henry wilson uh takes turns you know like helping them out remember when he kills the story about uh avis's uh Thing with the tabloids and like mm-hmm. he's 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 doing actually good things for everyone half the time even if he's a dipshit so it's like there just never was a consistent source of conflict um which i think makes the lack of resistance to certain obvious uh taboos of the time even more obvious like the fact that camille and raymond were in an interracial relationship during the Hayes code they acknowledge the Hayes code on this show yet it never comes up that that they happen to be dating a white person and a black person like that, that doesn't come up at all on the show when they're talking about the problems they're going to face so it's like it kind of picked and choose what it wanted to go into but i still had a good time because i think a lot of the performances i really like i think dylan mcdermott as ernie who uh that's based off uh scotty bowers who's a very interesting figure to look into he you know, plays basically the pimp at the gas station but he was he was just really really charming the whole time and yeah. i also really liked uh, joe mantello who plays uh dick mm-hmm. samuels at Ace Studios, and also Holland Taylor as uh, Ellen Kincaid. I thought they yep. really kind of grounded everything because we kind of float in and out of the actors and the writers' lives throughout. So it's uh, still it's still a lot of fun, but you can definitely poke holes in it like a lot of Murphy shows. No, I, I thought it was definitely a good time. It's it's a movie or it's a movie. It's a seven seven part movie. No, it's seven uh, episode show. It goes by quick, um, and honestly, it. We're, we're sitting here with a critical eye. Um, I've had a couple people who've watched in my life that really just enjoyed the ending and like that it was a happy mm-hmm. ending. And uh, it actually kind of telegraphs that in a way, right? Because they they have the original right of the script and it's going to end in tragedy. And then they kind of say, well, we can't have a black woman who you know jumps off this building because it's what does that show to all the other black people who do watch this? So it kind of does end up with that like overcoming, you know, story at the end, which is yeah. kind of an interesting thing too, that they kind of set that up. 
Um, I don't know what, what Murphy's doing next, but I, I find the choices he's made for Netflix very interesting. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. And I mean, if he's going to be getting like Rob Reiner in like a, you know, a shows up in three episode type thing, I mean, how, how could you not be tuning into these shows at yeah. this point in my opinion? Oh, of course. And I mean, you, I mean, they really spared no expense to recreate post-war golden age Hollywood, great. you know, it looked awesome. Um, and yeah, I mean like, yeah, I think the ending's a little hokey, but I still, I still enjoyed it. You know, I started watching some Oscar speeches afterwards to be completely honest. Like it was, you know, I was feeling good, no doubt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I, I liked, uh, I really like Laura Harrier as Camille as well. She's been someone yeah. that I've kind of been watching, you know, since Spider-Man Homecoming and what she, she was in the Fahrenheit 451 thing for HBO, but all her scenes were cut if I remember right. So like, I've been waiting for her to have another like big role. Yeah, she was good. Uh, she was good in this. Um, you know, like all Murphy shows, there's a lot of uh, frequent collaborators: McDermott, Darren, Chris, um, etc. Uh, how'd you? I did thought, you like? Uh, and David Cornsweet, who was in Politician yeah. as a, a River, uh, he played Jack in this. You know, I think for Jack, uh, I th- I really liked his role in kind of setting the story going, and he, he's probably strongest in those first two episodes when he's laying setting oh, yeah. the table for everything. Um, I think maybe the presence of his wife, who obviously leaves him at the end, that almost like was unnecessary. Like she was just so underwritten and, and unnecessary. And yet all the other female characters in the show were really well written. So it just kind of felt like a super superfluous add on. that maybe couldn't fix. I don't know. Um, but I, yeah, I like, I like that presence as well. But yeah, I mean, tell me, well, how are you feeling about uh, Jim Parsons as uh, Henry Wilson? Definitely almost leaning into the, uh, the, the, the stereotype that is like a more like a predatory gay person. Yeah. It's coming of course from Parsons and Murphy two gay men. So I guess you can let that go. But yeah, he he uh he the, the tonal shifts are are largely from uh Parsons performance scene to scene. Yes. So uh I guess it depends how that hits for you whether you enjoy it or not. Yeah, it's just and this is no fault of Parsons when you've played a character who has become so so much a part of the culture for good and for bad. Some people love mm-hmm. um Big Bang Theory. And yep. a lot of people do not love Big, Big Bang Theory. To then see him playing this extremely different role where he's so cynical and, like you mentioned, abusive and, uh, you know, really uh, profiting off of his abuse and off of his power. It's just, uh, it was tough for me at times. And I, I felt like Parsons gave his best performances near the end, you know, like when he was kind of like this crazed like producer trying to get credit and then feeling like he was like scorned, but kind of coming around. I felt like that was when I, I believed in the most when he was like dancing around with rock Hudson in his, um, in his apartment or whatever, his, his house. I was like, this is like where this role feels like it's kind of losing it for me a little bit. It just feels like Parsons is hamming this up now. Um, so I, I don't know, my, my mileage varied on it, but I was wondering how you felt. Like, can you separate Parsons from that that Sheldon? I don't even know Sheldon's last name. Um, I don't know Sheldon's either. Um, I just know Sheldon. Yeah, yeah Sheldon, um, which is still, as you said, still in the consciousness. Young Sheldon, still a big hit for CBS. Um, yeah, I don't have a problem with that in terms of, like, believability, but it's just kind of funny seeing him, like, 
really go for it. And then you have Rock Hudson just kind of playing it straight the whole time. Yeah. So, um, but on the other hand, sometimes he would liven it up more than anyone else around him. So I wonder what show would have been like if everyone else was kind of on that wavelength as well. And I don't, I don't know, but yeah, I, 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 I didn't mind it, but I, de- I definitely noticed it. So maybe that, I don't know if that matters, but it stood out. <laughs> Did you feel like um, Murphy was trying to say something by, you know, Jack and Rock Hudson both being played as these like very dopey, almost like idiotic, stupid characters? Like they were both pretty dumb, like uh, thick, I guess might be a good way to put it in the head. Uh, yeah, that's interesting because you know, along those lines, I was expecting Jack to not like have the happy ending but he does mm-hmm. he's in the hit movie he's part of the it couple you know and it's kind of all setting it up it's like oh here's jack well jack's this really handsome uh straight white guy he's already married and eh, maybe the wife thing won't work out but jack's fine but like it, it almost wasn't cutting enough yeah like in terms of what i was trying to say uh, and that's okay again it was enjoyable but yeah, it's it's funny. There's actually a lot to chew on with this show. Only seven episodes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, check out Hollywood on Netflix. Seven episodes. Pretty good. Normal People on Hulu. Getting a lot of buzz recently. Dave and I watched the whole series. And, uh, mate, I got some mixed feelings about this series. Whoa. <laughs> uh I want to. I want to see kind of where you're at with it. I'm gonna say, it's it's a well done series and it's pretty good. And I was invested in these characters. Mm-hmm. I, I left with so many questions throughout and just kind of like feeling like some of these character choices uh, and things that they did. Maybe it's because I was upset with them, or maybe it's because I don't think they're totally logical and maybe that fits for the characters. But I was a little bit frustrated with some of the directions the show went. How are you feeling about normal people, though? Wow, interesting, interesting. I really like, I really love the show. Uh, this is one of my favorite shows of the year. I thought it was incredibly affecting, and as you said, you really get invested in this story. It's a young adult series that series that's portraying young romance, yet it's still done really smartly. Along that line, it also happens to be really erotic and sensual in a honestly just incredibly impressive way the way it's done but yeah i i mean i I thought this was this was great i was uh trying to stop myself from watching it so fast because i just immediately got invested in the way they were telling the story and the leads had just sparkling chemistry from the jump that you know i think it's a total success um but yeah i mean what 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 are these issues that uh that uh Connell and Marianne couldn't solve for you. What's going on here? Well, it's a lot of it has to do with the ending, but also just like the the way that a lot of the the conflict develops, right, is a circumstance happens in one of their lives that pushes them possibly in a different direction. And they just never fucking talk to each other, man. It, it's so aggravating. Like, okay, so... The, <laughs> You don't. I don't really know the logistics of Ireland, but they're going to Trinity, which is yep. this very well-respected school mm-hmm. in Dublin. Um, it seems like it's maybe like an hour away from their hometown. 
I looked it up. I think it's a little farther than that. But yeah, okay. They're from Sligo, which is like on the other side of Ireland. If you go west, I think. I was looking at the map because I was curious what that uh, train route <laughs> they, right. they were using. Right. So he he's like, oh, I uh, I don't have a job, so I can't pay my rent, so I have to move back home for the summer, which is like two months, maybe three months uh, that, that he has to be away. And she's like, it's a two oh, and a half hour drive. Okay, two and a half hour drive. Damn, I know it's small. Yeah, and she's like, oh, okay, well, and he's like, I guess we got to break up then. And she's like, oh, I guess we do. And then they break up. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, why were, why were, were didn't one of you say, like, maybe we try long distance for the summer or maybe we just mm-hmm. try to go every other week? Like, there's never any, like, talk of them, like, oh, maybe we should try to figure things out. It's always just like, nope, we're broken up. See you later. Go do your thing. Right. Marianne's like, I'm going to run back to this other guy. And Connell's like, I'm going to go be depressed. Like, it's very frustrating in that sense. And they're, yeah, and they're know, smart people, obviously. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, so yeah, I definitely had that thought too when I'm watching it. I'm like, uh, what happened here? Then I think as you watch it more, it came into focus for me because when Marianne and Connell have that ice cream chat in mm-hmm. Italy, gelato chat, uh, Marianne's like, oh yeah, we never really talked about this, right? And that's on the topic of the big wealth disparity class disparity between their two upbringings their two families and it kind of highlights that connell was always really uncomfortable with his class and that you know that had kind of been portrayed throughout the show as throughout things happens and connell just wasn't able to ask for that and that's still obviously it's still an annoying trait but that's just that's just who the connell connell is right like he 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 struggled with that. It was something that Marianne didn't really notice. And on one hand, I really like that as just kind of the framing of how we get introduced to these characters, right? You have Connell, the popular kid who's working class. You have Marianne, the outcast who's really wealthy. And then obviously that gets flipped later on when when they go to Trinity, right? But the conversations they have later on, I think, let me forgive that. But you're right. If they were better communicators, maybe if they were a little more mature, uh, some of their co- issues wouldn't happen. But I think that's why it's uh, honestly so effective because you understand still why they had these issues. And, you know, I, I think it's just done really well. Uh, I was also a little bit frustrated with the ending because I feel like it's a similar type of thing, right? Like, Marianne's life has become a lot of like what Connell's life is. Like she goes to holidays with his family. She mm-hmm. spends a lot of time with him at school, even though she's developing her own friend group and she's finishing up her degree as he's, you know, finishing up a year before her, it seems. And he's going to New York and she's just like, you got to go. You got to follow this opportunity, which he doesn't even seem totally like he really wants to do. He's kind of like, yeah, I guess I could. Me, and, me, me in New York City. Can't even walk down Dublin without tripping on myself. <laughs> uh, and then, and then he, she basically like makes him say he's gonna go, and then she's like, "Yeah, but I'm not going." And I'm like, "But why? Like you, you again? Try long distance for one year and see where you're at. You're gonna graduate. Maybe you get into a college over there. You like your life over here. What is your life? This one friend who you watch movies with at night. That's all that's been established as your life outside of 
you doing the things Connell does. That part I'll, also frustrated. That was the thing I was like, she's like, well, I'm really comfortable and uh, happy with my life here. And I'm like, well, what do you mean by that? Because like, I get it. Like we get it. It's what sure. established that Marianne was pretty fucked up, right? And yes. having a hard yes. time uh, coming to grips with who she was and like being valued and appreciated by people around her right like she went through a lot and i think the sweden scenes really go through that and a lot of that shit's really tough to watch but yeah just um they they're almost like letting each other go and they both they both helped each other get to a better spot in their lives obviously connell gets through a big bout of depression when his friend dies right like so it's like you understand it but like you're so invested and you're like but wait you don't have to do it this way I think that's why it's so great because you were that invested in these stories. And I think the chemistry between Daisy Edgar Jones and Paul Mescal is just so strong from the jump yeah. that like they just really sell everything. No, totally. And and th- that's the thing is that this is a well done show. And I think, I think they actually touch on a lot of topics and build out these characters in way that ways that make sense. I'm just frustrated that some of the decision-making wasn't fleshed out a little bit more. These conversations weren't had. Cause I think very easily it could have come up where like, you know, Marianne's like, well, I got this opportunity or this internship for the summer. So I, I, I can't go back home or I'm going to do this thing. So maybe that doesn't make sense for us to stay together right now. That would have made it feel a little bit better for me, but I do agree with what you're saying. I think the way that they handle uh, the suicide of Connell's friend and his depression and connection with therapy afterwards is actually really, really well done. Um, I think the way that they kind of show Marianne's arc around her family and how that's kind of led to this idea of like what she deserves in relationships, especially relationships with men um, is really well done. And kind of um, the way that she goes from Connell who it treats her like shit, but in a, a not so uh, in a flamboyant right. way, not so obvious like, way. And to unknowingly more usually and more, right to it being more and more abusive um, and, and her almost wanting the pain, feeling like she deserves the pain makes is such a, a well done built out character. And yeah, I, I think they really sell you on this relationship. I, w- I was rooting for them the whole time. And it was so frustrating when they weren't fucking together. I just wanted them to figure yeah. it out. So it leaves me frustrated. Um, one thing I know we've joked about, I wanted to just bring up, to be on the oh, record. Yeah. We got no. This this is an important point. I think go into it. Okay. So this this is a trope that's in a lot of things. But Daisy uh, Edgar Jones is mm-hmm. gorgeous. Like she is absolutely stunning. And Hathaway lookalike to me, just like totally beautiful. And they set her up as like the rich girl who's alone, weird, and like kind of ugly. And then she like does her bangs a little differently, puts on a tight black dress and goes out and they're like, Oh, Oh my God. Like you aren't that ugly. Oh, Marianne, what'd you do here? Something new. (laughs) I'm doing you a favor to sleep with you. And it's like, you sure about that buddy? (laughs) Yeah. Right. You're this ugly like guy from the UK. And this is like a 10 in like every respect of the word. And man, I just like could not get over that. Cause like, she goes on to have these like douchey boyfriends throughout and people are like, Oh, what was she like in high school? And she's like, Oh, she didn't have any friends. Like no one even really wanted to bother with her. I'm like, I don't get why. Like, I feel like any guy (laughs) that saw this girl in high school would be like, will you go out with me? (laughs) Yeah. I think that's one piece of criticism that I've seen from fans of the book. And this is obviously adapted from Sally Rooney, her second novel. It's a very new novel. Sally Rooney is a, uh, 
really fast rising star in the modern literary scene. I think she's 29 now, two, no, two hit novels in. They're already uh, developing the same team, Lenny Abramson and crew, where they're developing a conversation with friends as well to be a show. So people that are fans of Normal People, the book, uh, I think between the internal monologue of Mary Ann and just you know, the way books are different, it seems to be made more clear that that is actually Marianne's um, circumstance. But, mm-hmm. you know, now that we have Daisy Edgar Jones in our, in our, in our mind, when we think of Marianne, it's a, a little bit of a walk, but yeah, I obviously I'm letting it go, but it was just really funny. It's like <laughs> the whole time is like, Oh, well, cause she wears her hair in a braid. It's like, right. It's like, she's <laughs> like, what? Are you serious? <laughs> just kind of yeah. funny. Just totally blew my mind. Um, Fionn O'Shea played Jamie. Uh, him and Sandy, my my least favorite characters I've watched on television this year, Sandy from Plot Against America. Both of them can kick rocks. And at least Sandy was like somewhat redeemable. Yeah. Fionn O'Shea is Jamie. It's just like a total god, yeah. dude. I mean, in Sandy's case, Sandy was like, what, 14? You know? Yeah. He's like a little shit kid, doesn't know any better. You can forgive a lot of it, right? But yeah, Jamie in Normal People is just completely detestable the entire time. Despicable. Like from the start where he's like putting the moves on Marianne when she's still with Connell. He's like touching her leg and stuff and be like, oh, you write for him? And it's like, dude, you're just being a creep. Like, right. what the hell? And then, oh man, like the conversations he has when he's just like this clashes dipshit in Italy. And like, he's like, oh, the, oh, the Guggenheim, it's so overrated. And it's yeah. like, what? You like, do you just not now understand how snobby you sound when you talk like that? So it's kind of funny just how one note his character was because most most arcs of the show are so you know uh, well written and and, de- and full of depth and Jamie was anything but right yeah Jamie especially when Connell's like yeah God forbid you're around some some Asian people huh Jamie and he's just like just looking at him with his like full glass of wine then he like overflows and throws it down I was like get this guy off the show like I yeah. literally can't stand him for another second. Uh, right. Obviously, well, well played. That's the character, but damn. And you know, I think in a sense, uh, Jamie almost is is more important in like writing and like fleshing out Connell than Marianne because, like, for Marianne, just it's part of like the way she's just uh, going through this thing where she wants to be she's valued by feeling devalued by her partners and stuff, right? But for Connell, it's like, well, Connell is being written as, as this uh, thoughtful jock figure right he's almost like the an internet boyfriend trope where it's like oh well Noah he's centennial the, yeah well but that's the thing though no Noah centennial is like presents as kind of dumb dumb hot guy whereas paul mescal is like yeah i'm rugby star who or irish football star who also reads and writes real good you know i'm i could have kicked your brother's ass after he hit you but i didn't i just threatened him you know I could have wiped the floor with Jamie, who's obviously scared of me and intimidated by me, but I didn't, you know? So ultimately, I feel like the show becomes a, more of a Paul Meskel vehicle yeah. than Daisy oh. Edgar Jones. And that starts kind of early on, right? Because when they have their conflict where in the beginning where um, Connell basically like doesn't ask uh, Marianne out to like the prom or whatever and yeah. um, makes her feel really bad. And they, they split. And then from that point, we follow Connell still, taking in the yeah. Trinity. And we don't see Marianne again until they reconnect at Trinity at this party. And, and like 
she's the social butterfly and she's wearing her hair down and she looks amazing because spoiler she's actually a really attractive woman and like <laughs> i really like that choice though of how they actually followed kyle they followed the 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 perpetrator of this conflict right and it kind of stuck with uh connell a lot throughout and paul mesco i believe this is like his first main role he's been primarily a stage actor to this point both him and daisy edgar jones are just superstars now man they are incredibly famous like that and it's mm-hmm. it's been kind of cool to see and hearing them talk about how it's uh been wild for them but uh yeah it's just learning because they i think they're both tremendous actors and perfectly cast one last thing i just wanted to shout out um i think the way that they portray consensual sex in this show yeah is really well done and like um it's never like made weird i th- I know like as someone who in my role uh, in my job I, I have to have these conversations for, like title nine trainings and things like that in terms of like having consent throughout the act mm-hmm. and things like that they display that really well especially in like the the last scene where you really see them doing it and marianne asks connell to hit her and, and he's like oh no i don't want to do that and like kind of seeing that that play out not only i think the the psychology of it kind of it, it comes into play and you know him being like you know her be like do you like when i say that thing or how does that mm-hmm. make you feel so then him saying i don't want to do that is just really um i thought well written well done well displayed so I want to get yeah, absolutely for that and Good. you know i mean the overall presence of intimacy coordinators on productions these days that's the norm now and obviously that's really great but like despite the fact that we're getting this, you know, really uh, by the book, the way it should be done sex, right? They're, they're wearing condoms. Uh, he's mm-hmm. saying he'll stop if it hurts. All, all those, those great things that you should be doing. You're actually seeing that portrayed, and it's not uh, stopping away from the fact that the sex scenes you're watching are really hot. Yeah. And they're shot really well, still tastefully, yet really sensually as well. So that, I think that, that, that's kind of like the, that's the lightning rod part of the show, right? That gets a lot of attention. But mm-hmm. it's done a lot better than just about any other sex scenes I've seen in a long time. So totally agree. That's a, I think also an important note. Uh, also, shout out Connell's uh, email. He goes from Hotmail to Gmail completely unexplained during the show. Definitely a big plot hole. Uh, there was a Frank Ocean Nikes drop at one point that I really appreciated. And I also wanted to shout out uh, the Italy scene where the Ryan bikes. And Sufjan yeah. Stevens' does Mystery of Love does not play because this was not, in fact, Call Me By Your Name. So that made me sad. But I just listened to that song 10 times over the weekend. So it's all good. But. What a great song. Dave, what do the people got to watch, listen to, or consume for next week's pod? Uh, we got The End of the Last Dance, the Michael Jordan doc on ESPN. We have Survivors. Season 40, Winners at War finale on Wednesday. We'll be talking about that a little late, obviously, but I'm happy to get into that. That'll be fun. Um, Charlie XCX is dropping her quarantine album on Friday. And Moses Subney is dropping the second part of his album, Gray. We talked about the first part earlier in the year. Mm-hmm. And also on Tuesday, so by the time you're hearing this in all likelihood, it'll be out on VOD. Josh Trank's return with Capone starring Tom Hardy and Linda Cardellini. Uh, just... I think morbid curiosity from just uh, all film fans on what the hell this movie is like. It used to be called Fonzo. Now it's called Capone. Here it is. We'll be talking about it. We'll see. Again, <laughs> follow us at, at NostalgiaPod on Twitter, SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod, and YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. Stay safe out there. Wear a mask. Social distance. Later. <laughs>